Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everybody, to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007 and am the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery from sexual abuse. I work with survivors who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable, and I help them let go of the pain of abuse and move on with their lives. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at www.rachelgrantcoaching.com. And I am so very excited to have you here with me and my guest, Marilyn Vandiver, who is going to be sharing with us her journey of healing. And I first want to tell you a little bit about this amazing woman. She was crowned Miss America. Can you believe it? We have a Miss America here on Beyond Surviving. And then she graduated from the University of Colorado with Phi Beta Kappa honors. Marilyn chose motivational speaking as her career and was named Outstanding Woman Speaker in America. Marilyn's worst nightmare came true when she was 53. A newspaper reporter learned she was an incest survivor from ages 5 to 18, and the next morning it was front-page news on the Denver Post. Can you believe it? Ugh. So miserable. And then when People Magazine put her picture on the cover, there was a national outpouring from survivors who turned to her for help and support. She opened the door 
for tens of thousands of sexual abuse survivors to also speak the words, many for the first time. During the past 13 years, she has been a busy gal. She has spoken in over 225 cities and never leaves the room until men and women have personally said everything they want and need to say to her. So it's not unusual, you know, for people to line up for two or three hours to speak words they've never spoken. And the healing that takes place during this time is often life-changing. The culmination of Marilyn's work is her book, Miss America by Day, which I really encourage you to go and get. It's a really wonderful story, and it's so honest. It's so real. And it also won the prestigious Writer's Digest Award. And of the 1,900 books entered into the national competition, it won first place in the most inspirational book category. So, Marilyn, it's um, not enough to say that it's an honor to have you here with us tonight. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you, and thank you for the work that you do each and every day. Mm. It's good work. It's rewarding work. As um, and and you're out there, you know, alongside folks like myself who are really advocating for survivors and and wanting them to to heal and to reclaim their lives. And you know, to get us started tonight, what I what I would love is if you just tell us a little bit about your story, your journey, um, what happened to you. Uh, my father started coming into my room at night when I was five, and it didn't stop until I left for college at age 18. And I think what is so difficult for most people to believe or understand is that it is possible to repress memories. I had mm. no memory of the nights of my life for 13 years. It's just it's astonishing that your mind is able to do that. Yeah. But how how could I go to school and get A's and be on the swim team and be May Queen and if I knew what I was going home to? It, it just, there was no way out. There was no one ever who would have helped me. I look back, there was, mm-hmm. there was no one. And mm-hmm. so my mind was a magical place. Um, I was able to repress the nights and go about my life. But the problem is, is that your subconscious r- rules your life. And so yeah. what, it began, what it began to do was to make me do things that I didn't understand. For example, um, I fell in love with my now husband, Larry, when I was 15. He was 17. And he was a senior in high school. I was a sophomore. And he went away to college the next year. And we wrote every single day. Could not wait uh-huh. until summertime to, to be together. And he came home and came to the door. And I said, I'm leaving for the summer. You're leaving for the summer? I, I, yes, I am. I'm going to Europe. So the next year, we, we ride every day, and the next summer he comes home. I'm going to go to summer school in Wisconsin. What I didn't know was that I'd, I I didn't ever want to stay in my room again. And so I was mm-hmm. finding ways to get away, but I didn't yes. understand that. Um, and he certainly didn't understand that. And then I married someone other than Larry. And I had met my youth minister when I was 15, the same year I met Larry. And for nine years, my youth minister just, I i just looked like the perfect teenager. And I was. I oh, just yeah. was everything that you mm-hmm. could want me to be. But there was something that just didn't, it just for him, there was just a missing piece. No one yeah. would have seen it, but he did. 
And mm-hmm. for nine years, he would see me do something that didn't quite make sense, and he kind of tuck it away, wasn't really thinking too much about it, except that was odd, um, until I married someone other than Larry. And mm-hmm. that really, he, he because he knew how much I loved Larry. And he just, oh, wait a minute, what is she doing? And then Something's I, not adding I divorced, up here. Yeah. I divorced mm-hmm. after three months. And then he said, that was the ninth year, then he said, okay, now I understand she's trying to destroy herself. I just have to figure out why. And right. I had been Miss America, and I was working in New York. I was 24, and I would fly to Beverly Hills to, to do work in Los Angeles. And I, he had a church in L.A. at the time. And I would always call and say, hi, it's Marilyn, just calling to say hi. I don't have time to see you. And he said, one day I realized you 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 did want to see me, but you didn't want to see me. And he said, uh-huh. the next time you called, I knew it would be a different call. And I called him one day when I was 24. I said, hi, it's Marilyn. I'm in L.A. don't have time to see you. And he said, where are you? I said, I'm at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He said, stay there. He said, stay there, just like that. And he drove as fast as he could. And it was about 11 o'clock, and the, the luncheon room was empty. And we went in there to talk, and I, it, it's like I don't remember anything until I looked up and everybody's had lunch and they've gone. Um, yeah. He just asked. He just asked me the question. He said there wasn't anything else. I'd been down every road, and uh-huh. you could not have. You've seen my books, so or you've seen what my family looks like. You could not yeah. have imagined incest to be happening in my family. You just couldn't imagine it. And yeah. I didn't say anything. I just sobbed. I just sobbed and sobbed. I I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed until I was exhausted. And I looked up and I said, "Don't tell anyone." Mm-hmm. And he, oh, his his question was so brilliant. If I had said that to to someone, you'd say, "Okay, I won't." But he didn't say that. I said, "Don't tell anyone." And he said, "Who don't you want me to tell?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Larry." And Larry was not in my life at this point. And he said, "Then Larry's the only one we have to tell." Well, right. I could yes. never tell Larry. How could I tell Larry? He kissed me goodnight at the door from the time I was 15. I was a perfect mm-hmm. teenager. So now Larry's right. going to have to connect kissing me goodnight at the door as a perfect teenager and then going down the hallway to my father. That's just, the sh- the shame was so overwhelming that yeah. I just knew I I couldn't do that. And no. he got me to call Larry and... Larry said, I've come for nine years. I'm not coming anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I hung up the phone and I started sobbing again. And part of me was so happy that I didn't have to tell him. And the other part of me was <laughs> right. so sad because I loved him. Yeah. And uh, yeah. my youth minister said, um, give me the number. And I said, no. He said, give me the number. And he called. And he said to Larry, if you have ever loved her, I ask you to come. And so he came the next morning and he walked into to Didi's study with a, a legal pad. He's an attorney. He opened up his briefcase, he pulled out a legal pad, and he said, All right, tell me what I'm supposed to know here. Mm. And of course I'm just I'm just crying and waiting for Didi to tell him. And Didi said, um, Marilyn has something to tell you and I sobbed, I can't. I just can't. And Didi said, well, we will wait until you can. He understood the importance of my speaking the words. I'd never spoken the words. 
Right. I yeah. he he didn't he didn't try to do my work for me. He said we will wait until you can because he knew that that's the first step. And mm-hmm. I just yeah. I just searched for words and finally it came out and Larry I just thought Larry would get up and walk out. I I, I thought he would look at me with such disdain, such hatred, such I just I, I just and he mm-hmm. just put his arms around me and he just held me and he said I understand everything now and Didi said I'll marry you both now and I said I really have to get out of here I really I really <laughs> need to go now it was just way 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 I, I wasn't able to yeah I couldn't marry Larry for two years it took two years to finally be able to do that but um so that was the beginning of my healing oh my goodness Marilyn, I would just thank you so much for sharing that. There's so much in there. And, you know, certainly in reading your story, you know, the love journey that you and Larry go on is is so wonderful to watch. It's painful. It's agonizing. It's like, come on, woman. And, you know, but I love that this person, Dee Dee, comes into your life. And as I was reading that, one of the things that really stood out to me about that was the importance that someone somewhere somehow sees us. Yes. And, you know, notices and takes notice and becomes like they take a stand for us. Like yeah. You are. Yes. Where I'm going to figure this out, and you are going to heal. You are going to be okay. And um, I think we all, uh, you know, my my hope is always that every survivor gets at least one person like that in their lives because it does yes. make such a huge difference and creates that opportunity as you, you're noticing that you to step in into healing. And one of the things that you, that you shared there was the fact that these memories were not present. And one of the things you say in the book that I loved was you said, you know, I marvel at the mental gymnastics that allowed me to survive. When I was, when my life shut down, when it really shut down, I was 45. And Uh for the next six years from 45 to 51, I just tried to get up out of bed. Um, And on the days that I didn't think I was going to die uh, or that I couldn't make it, I was, I was so, I was so... Fascinated by the mind yeah. and how the mind. I I, I had um, so much body pain, and um, I, because I had tightened, I had gone into a fetal position every, every night when my father came in and um, tried to stay as tight as I could. And the problem was I couldn't I couldn't let go of that, and right. I kept trying to find somebody to help me free my body and. Finally, at age 50, um, I just said to Larry, I, 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 can't, I can't do this anymore. I need to check into a psychiatric hospital, and I did. I went to Cedars-Sinai um, and checked in there, and it, I, there was just no help at all. Um, and I came back home, and I'd been to all kinds of different therapies, and one day somebody mentioned a therapist, and I, I, I was going to figure it out. I was mm-hmm. going to get through it, and... So I, all I remember about this man is that he was tall. I'm 5'8", so he he was probably six feet tall. And for some reason, we were standing, looking at one another. I'm not. I don't remember why. And he said to me, um, "Are you sure you want to let your body 
muscles go. Hmm. And I'm thinking, uh, are you kidding me here? Uh, do I? But I, I didn't say that. And my body, I kind of collapsed as if I were going to touch my toes. My body, right. went, my head went down, all the way down, and I whispered, it's all I have. Mm. And I realized that I was choosing to keep my body tight because it was all I had. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, my mind was do- it was my mind that was doing that. And once right. I made that connection, okay, my mind is still choosing to, to, because it's all I have to protect myself. I don't need that anymore. But I would mm-hmm. marvel at the fact that my mind was causing right. all of my body pain. I just had right. to try to figure out why. Um, I had beautiful long hair. And I believed that I won Miss America because of my hair. I believe okay. that I got I believe that I got standing ovations because of my hair. I, I I know that sounds so strange, but I believe that. And nobody could touch my hair. Nobody. Just don't touch my hair. Yes. My hair was That's like right. a sacred place. Um, yeah. And when I was forty, when I was forty, I was flying home from a speech in Detroit and. I changed my ticket and flew to New York and had a woman who had worked on my hair when I did television work. And I went in and I sat down and I said, cut my hair off. And she said, what? I said, I want you to cut my hair off. And she said, okay. So she took about an inch. And I said, no, I want you to cut my hair off. Take it off. going all in, honey. Yeah. And she just looked at me in such disbelief. And it was a long time before I understood why I had done that. Um, why I, When I was little, um, even as a eight, nine, ten-year-old, I set my hair every night in bobby pins. I just saw a picture of myself on a horse. I was nine, and I have this beautiful hair. Um, but I set it every night with bobby pins. So my hair was the only part of me that my father didn't touch. It was the only part of me that was good. So when my life began to shut down, I I was triggered by my daughter's age. When my daughter was turning five, the age I was when it began, I flew to New York to cut off all my hair because now all of me was bad. All of me was bad. I cut off the only part of me that was good. Now, I didn't understand that at the time. Uh, I... uh, I certainly didn't understand why I cut my hair. But as I Mm -hmm. went through my healing process, I could look back and say, oh, that's why I did that. Because it was the only part of me that was good. Mm -hmm. Now I was Mm -hmm. all bad. Yeah. And that's when that's when I began to really go down. Now what I needed during my during those difficult years of recovery, I needed to find a woman who had come through the healing process. And I would say to Larry, just find me one woman so that I'll know it's possible. Will I always be this way? Will I always just be just have anxiety that I can't cope with? Will I always just be sobbing? Will this ever end? Find me somebody. And it's uh-huh. one of the reasons uh-huh. I went to the psychiatric hospital. I thought, well, I'll find somebody there. Well, there was nobody there. I couldn't find anybody. And one day Larry said to me, role model for yourself. And so I began to visualize myself as healed from this 
horrible recovery process that we all have to go through. Yeah, um, yeah. And the last 25 years of my life, one of my major missions is to stand before men and women. I had a mm-hmm. woman who is had a woman email me, and she she was coming to one of my speeches, and she said, "I need to see you, and touch you, and know that you're real." I knew exactly what she was mm-hmm. saying. Oh yeah. Did you really? Did you really get through it? I don't believe it. And she came to my speech and waited in line, to, and she came up to me, and she just looked into my eyes. She said, "I'm the woman who emailed," and I said, <laughs> "Hello," and I said, "Can you can you see? Can you feel?" the peace that I have found, and she said, I can. I can feel it, and I can see it. I said, I got there, and you can get there, too. You can. Oh, Marilyn, I love that message because, oh, pardon me for interrupting, uh, if I may, just real quick, because I think that is so, so important to, to emphasize for our listeners that part of the reason why I do this show, part of the reason why I bring people on and to tell about their journey is exactly that that, you know, we all find ourselves in those places, in those moments of, you know, I'm never going to get better. This is just how it's always going to be. It's, you know, and and it's hard if you don't really have a, a example out there of what it might look like, what it might feel like instead. So absolutely, it's so amazing that you get to hold that space for people and share that. Along those lines, one of the, one of the things I've... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, one of the, one of the good parts of... One of the very few good parts of my story is that anyone who has followed me or has read my book knows that I have been to the bottom of the bottom Mm -hmm. of the well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They know I've been there. And so I come in with credibility. And when they can hear me and see me, they begin to believe it's possible. If you do the work. If you right. do the work, I'll have, I answer 50 to 100 emails from survivors every day, and I'll have survivors say to me, well, I, I'm just too scared to do that. And I write mm-hmm. back, we're all scared. We're all scared, yes. and we do it anyway. We do right. it anyway. That's right. I'm scared to go talk to my brother. Well, we're all scared, and we do it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, you have to do the work. You have to do yeah. the work. For me, that, for me, that was confronting my mother, my father, my sisters. It, 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 it was... And my father went to get a gun. You know, it was just all that drama. All that. Um, and and yeah. if I had if I had gone in anger, I think he would have. I think he would have killed himself or me or both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He pulled out the gun right. after I talked with him. He pulled out the gun, and he said, "If you had come in any other way, I would have killed myself." And I think that's true. I think if I wow. had gone to him and said, I'm going to expose you, I'm going to talk about this, right. I I think he would have ended it right right there. Yeah. That was a really impactful moment in the book. And there, there are two things that come to mind. For, first of all, backing up to something you just said about facing our fears, you know, one of the things you write in the book is that the only path to sanity, peace, and healing is to face our fears. And yet, as you've said, and certainly as I've experienced in my journey with survivors, that that is the very first hurdle of getting past that initial fear. And it, it is kind of a just do it 
moment. <laughs> and also, I was wondering if there's anything else that you have found along the way in your journey that helps with that, that even if the fear is facing that, that or uh, sitting there, like that helps people to, to, you know, if they're shut down or terrified to do so, to get over that hurdle so they can get on the journey to healing. Well, I have many survivors. Um, One that comes to mind lives on the East Coast, and her first email to me was, um, I'm going to kill myself. I can't. It's so Mm -hmm. interesting. People don't don't say, hello. Um, Right. My name is Arlene, (laughs) and I have three children and a dog. You know, it's, it's... it's some, they don't even say hello, yeah. Marilyn. It's just I I really am going to kill myself today. They just go right into their mm-hmm. stories, and you know I email back and I said, well that's that's a choice. Um, let's let's talk and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and uh, it's probably I'm not good on time. I'm guessing two years. And today <clears throat> she's she's doing so well. I mean she's doing so well. She's forming relationships. Um, we just kind of talked it through. We just kind of kept going back and forth, and she'd get a little bit stronger, and then she'd, you know, fall back. Um, and I think communicating with people, finding people that you you trust, yeah. that you can yeah. talk to when it gets really, really bad. You just you can't hold all of that in yourself. You need um, what I do is just bear witness. Um, mm-hmm. people write mm-hmm. me their stories and I, I bear witness. It's getting yeah. it out. It's putting it on paper. If you if you don't want to talk to someone, then you need to journal and journal and journal and journal. <clears throat> My recommendation always is to journal at the same time every day. You make a commitment. At 6 o'clock every morning, I will type for no less than 10 minutes. You can do more than that, but never less than that. No agenda. You just sit down and whatever your fingers want to type, and then you don't even have to read it. You just file it, and pretty soon your subconscious knows you're going to show up. And pretty mm-hmm. soon, I remember when I did that, I remember one day I typed and typed and typed, and then I read what I wrote, and I just laid down on the floor and just sobbed, just sobbed. I'd put it on paper. So yeah, you need to get out that. of your, get it out of yourself. Yeah, got it. That's really, really sound sound guidance, um, I think, because it, it, you just got to start somewhere. And if the, if the somewhere is just telling a journal and talking about it there, then start there, and that's okay. And you'll continue to move towards, you know, the, the thing that you both need and the next step and the next step um, to get to the place of where you feel complete and whole. And... I'd love to hear, you know, one of the things that you talked about a little bit, which uh, is um, is the day child and the night child. You know, this feeling of there being kind of a separation of self. And what I'm curious about, because I work with people who have some dissociation and these sorts of things, is um, does that still exist for you? Or in your journey of healing <clears throat> from 13 years of incest, um, do you feel whole do you feel complete or what have been kind of the key markers along in your journey that have helped you to know that you're you're healing and you're you're there when i was 53 um and i picked up the denver post and my story was on the front page 
I believed my life was over. I believed that people would turn away from me. I believed that no college would accept my daughter. No boy's family would want to marry into my family. I just had all those were just all of my beliefs. Right. And what happened was um, I didn't have much time to think about that because the phone rang. And a woman said, you will need to have a press conference. And I said, I will never have a press conference. And she said, well, they're going to call your mother and your three sisters. And I said, what time is the press conference? So um, I had a press conference, and the next day it was on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. And they were calling my sisters. So I called my eldest sister in San Francisco, and I said, if you want to go public with this, do it. But don't do it in Denver, because we're never going to get off the front pages. So the third mm-hmm. morning, her story was on the front page with my picture. And huh. I said to Larry and Jennifer, I, I, I've got to get out of here. I, I've got to get out of here. And so we pulled on some sweats, and we went to the high school track, and we were jogging around the track, and the woman with her two, two dogs came, and we always said hello, but this time she stopped me. And she said, Marilyn, we're so proud of what you're doing. And I'm so grateful your sister Gwen came forward this morning. I was really not happy about that. And I said, really, why? And she said, because yesterday on our most popular radio talk show, people were calling in and saying, why should we believe her? Now that your sister has come forward, they will have to believe you. I looked at her and I said, if people are not going to believe 53-year-old me, then Mm -hmm. who is going to believe a child? And Mm. that was the moment that changed my life. I went home, I called the newspaper, I called the television stations, and Mm -hmm. I said, let's get to work. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'd been talking to the press, I'd been talking to the press for about, oh, maybe 10 days, and one day I'm talking to this reporter, and he said, "What's? Give me something. Give me something new today. What you got?" And I said, um, <laughs> "I said, um, oh my! I said, I'm talking to you today, and I don't have any shame. Mm. I don't feel shame. It, I, oh, it was just I was done wow. with it. I, I was." Yeah. I was proud of who I am. I was not hiding anymore, and I was not shamed. I was proud, and that was another really life-changing moment. Oh, man, that's really awesome. The the other thing that you mentioned a little earlier about the conversation that you had with your father where you you laid it on the line and said, I know what happened. Um, one of the things that I thought was really well um discussed or or just highlighted in your your book is the complex relationship that exists that you know here it is it's your father there's the father daughter relationship and then there's the abuser victim relationship but it's not so black and white because you certainly turn to your father many times for guidance and um even um consolation you know and and comfort in times and and I thought that I I really so appreciated that you spoke to that because a lot of times people who haven't been through abuse they don't get it they're like oh just you know, cut them out of your lives or forget it. But at the end of the day, 
he's still your dad. He's still your mom or still somebody who you love. And I wonder if you could say a little more about that, Marilyn, just what you've noticed in, in your years and, and in your journey about how we as survivors deal with that complex, you know, those layers of the relationships and um, that go on. I think it's one of the most difficult things that I've ever talked about. I, let me rephrase that. I think it's one of the most difficult things for people to understand. Um, mm-hmm. I loved my father, and my father is all I had. I didn't have anybody else. I had no relationship with anybody but my father. Um, yeah. I had no relationship with my sisters. I had no relationship with my mother. My father was all I had, and it was arsenic. And it was arsenic. <laughs> but he was also the only person who ever heard me, um, who ever, um, you know, he did like four things for me in my life that were mm-hmm. understanding, but that's four more than anybody else did. Right. And right. I really did, I really did love him. Yeah. And I know that is difficult for people to understand. That changed only uh it began to change but it that ended the day that i found out because when i went to talk to i was 40 when i went to talk to him um mm-hmm. and he said if i had known what it would do to you i never would have done it and mm-hmm. i clung to that i really i really yeah. clung to that you know if he'd known he would not have and i yeah. was the youngest daughter so you know i knew that that it was over and when i was 56 I received a letter from a woman in Denver who told me that my father had sexually violated her about 20 times when he was 75. He died of a heart attack at age 76. My father knew exactly what he was doing. And yeah. that information was, that, that's one of the most difficult letters I've ever read in my life. He yeah. never stopped. Yeah. It, uh, it, it just, yeah. I, I just, that was just overwhelming. And by that time, he was, he was dead. He had died. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very, very, very hard for me. What was hard for the people who loved me was that I had more anger for my mother than I had for my father. I was the yeah, opening keynote speaker. I was the opening keynote speaker for the men and women violated by priests. It's called Snap. Yes. And mm-hmm. I opened with, "You're angrier at the bishops than you are at the priests," and they're all shaking their heads. Yes. Mm. We're angrier at the person who did not protect us, and knew it. I had much more anger for my right. mother than I had for my father. And I also didn't have any relationship with my mother. So there was no mixture there. It wasn't as if I love her, I don't love her, which I had with my father. My father, was, I, I would say to my husband, Larry, I feel this way, I feel this way. And one day he said to me, take the white off of a golf ball and you'll see these rubber bands that are so intertwined, you cannot pull one mm-hmm. out. That mm-hmm. is how you feel about your father. You have mm-hmm. all of these mixed emotions that you can't pull one out and say, I love him, I hate him. You have all of yeah. these different emotions. That was not true with my mother. Um, my, that was not true with my mother. Okay. When you finally decided, first of all, yes, 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 and yes, <laughs> because um, certainly having worked with survivors for some time now, I, 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 I navigate this issue as well. It's like, well, there were the people who were standing by, 
And something about that, you're watching this happen to me and you're not doing anything feels almost ten times worse because here's here's my take on it. When we're little and we're being abused, we don't have any choice. We don't have any power. We don't have any say in it, even though we try to tell ourselves that we do in order to survive or cope. But at the end of the day, it's a big person, little person problem. And this other person in your life, whether it be an older sibling or a, a parent or an uncle or somebody, you know, a neighbor, they're a big person. And there's this such an incredible frustration that they have the position and the power to do something that you don't have and they don't. If my mother had, I, I turned to her when I was uh, 40. Eight. Mm-hmm. I went to the same breakfast room where I had confronted my father when I was 40, and I went to tell my mother. And yeah. I was sobbing so hard I, I could barely utter words, but I got the words out. And when I looked up, not only was she not consoling me or had her arms around me, she folded her arms and said, I don't believe you. It's in your right. fantasy. And... During my recovery, which again from 45 to 51, those were the six really hard years, I turned to her a number of times during those years. I needed my mother. I needed, I was feeling the emotions of the child. If she had been there for me at that point, if she had said, I am so sorry, I didn't protect you. She came in one day and I was crying and she said, I have no tears for you. I can feel nothing for you. Um, She just could not, she just would not, could not. Uh, I'll give you a, even a better example. When it was on the front page endlessly, um, it was on the front page six times, it was on the newscast morning, noon, and night. Mother and I only talked about it once the first day that it came out. And even though I had her and my mother-in-law for dinner three to five nights a week every week, I love my mother-in-law so desperately. Oh, she was such a good mother. Um even though it came out that he never stopped, uh, even though it came out that he had a gun, all of that was, and Mother read the paper every day. She never said a word to me. And three months later, I was asked to testify before a subcommittee in Washington, D.C., and some of my testimony drifted back to Denver, and Mother called. Mm. And she said, you said something today that really bothered me. And I thought, boy, I, can't, I just can't wait to hear this. She said, you... <laughs> She said, you said your father pried you open. I said, I did say that, Mother. They're saying he molested me, and I thought I needed more vivid words. And she said, please don't say that again. Mm-hmm. So that's what got her. Yeah. She made a choice, and, yeah, and, and, exactly. and I, she didn't choose me. And... Um, I didn't get a mother, but I I got a mother-in-law. I was given a mother. It was just in the form of my mother-in-law, whom Mm -hmm. I loved and adored. Mm -hmm. She was just, oh, she was the most nurturing, kind, loving, had no comprehension. She could not even, she really couldn't go there. She just could not imagine a father would do that to a daughter. She just, it was just beyond her. I really don't think she could think about it. I I just think she just shut that out of her mind because she just had no understanding of how that could possibly happen. But she was very nurturing to me. 
and I could mm-hmm. talk to her, and she would listen and love me, and she was just she was just a very special woman. So, Marilyn, how did you make your peace with that? Because this is something that comes up in my conversations with survivors all the time of, I wanted a mom. And I talk about, well, you didn't get to have a mom. Like, you didn't get it. Your mom didn't have mom things to give. And you can get, you know, you can you can find care and compassion in other ways from other people. And sometimes they'll say things like, well, it's not the same. It's never the same. And I think that's probably true, but I, I'm really curious how you came to that place of feeling acceptance and feeling complete about that and could, you know, look at your mother-in-law and, and have that kind of space filled from that relationship. Can you say a little more about that? Yes, what was so difficult is that I saw her so often. Um, three yeah. to five nights a week is just, that's just a lot. Um, yeah. And I saw her very often. And she just, you would have loved her. That was part of the problem. She was so, she was beautiful. She was engaging. She had a wonderful sense of humor. She was delightful to be with in terms of company. I don't want you to mm-hmm. picture some frumpy Grinch. She was right. charming. Uh, everybody just adored her, which, again, was part of the problem because that's not the mother that I got. But one day, and I don't remember whether it was the day she said, I have no tears for you, I can feel nothing for you, but it was a day like that. When I went into my mind and I buried not only the mother I never had, but much more difficult, I buried the mother I never would have. And I buried her. And I put on my armor when I was going to be in her presence because she would say things. Uh, One day um, we'd had dinner and Larry was in the kitchen and Larry's mother was there and my mother was there. And something came up and Mother turned to me and said, well, you've just never... uh, uh, it had to do with religion. And she said, well, you've just never been tested. Um, and she would say things like that that were just so hurtful. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and so I would put my armor on and try to let her, these comments that she had, ping off of me rather than go inside of me. So right. I would, when she was coming over, I would be prepared by putting my armor on, that she was going to say something just quite, in such a lovely way, just a lovely uh-huh. way. But right. It was like a knife in the back, and I would have been prepared for that by putting my armor on. And most of the time, I could kind of let it, just let it go, just not let it get mm-hmm. inside of me anymore. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a mother. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, but look at what I did get. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Are we going to think about what we didn't get or is. what we did get? Did I, did I marry? Did I marry the most amazing, wonderful, loving, kind man? We tried to have more children. I was only given one, but we were given one. We had one. Yes. Am I going to? Am I going to be angry that I didn't get five? I got one. Um, <laughs> so, so I think it's just important to focus oh, on the the blessings that you do have. Yes, yes, it's sad that I didn't get a mother or a father. Um, I didn't. And you know what's is Larry and I were talking about this yesterday. I didn't have any friends 
Now you wouldn't mm. have known that because I was I was May Queen. I was student council. I went to Girls Nation. I looked like I was in the middle of everything. Right. But I didn't right. have any I couldn't have close friends because my secret was too big. And when they have college reunions and I was I was a Pi Phi, I went to college. Pi Phi's nominated me for Miss University of Colorado. Um but I, I don't. I, why would I go to a reunion? I didn't have any yeah. friends that were meaningful. I couldn't mm-hmm. because my mm-hmm. secret was so huge. I miss that. I miss. Yeah. I see that with other people who get together with the friends they grew up with, and I do miss that. I don't have any childhood, teenage friends other than Larry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I miss. And I miss that. But. I just I ended my book. I think I I, I wrote it so many times. I think I ended it by saying um, <laughs> my my life has been richly blessed. And mm-hmm. someone looked at that and said to me, "You're really going to end with your life has been richly blessed after you've just poured out this nightmare you lived." And I said, "But my life has been richly blessed, mm-hmm. richly blessed." Yeah. Would I choose it again? Would I choose to go back to do the work I'm doing today? I would not. It was way too hard. But that's the hand I was dealt. So was I given a privilege for my story to be on the front page of the paper? It took me a few days to figure that out. I didn't get it until I saw the cover of People magazine. There's my picture on the cover of People magazine. And the caption said, Miss America overcomes shame. It didn't mm-hmm. say Marilyn overcomes incest. It said Miss America. Okay, now I understand why I was Miss America. I never wanted to be. I never wanted to be. Right. Okay, now I get right. that. Overcomes, it doesn't say incest or rape. It says shame mm-hmm. because that's what mm-hmm. it's about. And I looked up yeah. <laughs> and I said, because I had asked, I had never had a relationship with God because Mother was always on her knees with her, like you, like a child with her hands folded. When I went down right. to my room, she was on her knees praying. Well, whatever was working for her wasn't working for me. So yeah. I didn't have Jesus or God. I didn't have anybody. Um, but when I was about 51, I looked up one day and I said, um, Hello. <laughs> I actually said, my daughter, I actually said um, to myself, okay, here's here's the deal. This is the way my daughter talked. Okay, here's the deal. I want to help, but I don't know how. So if you give me a job, I will do it, whatever job you give me. Um, well, I got a job right away, and I'm thinking, oh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> I, no, you didn't understand. I I'll do a job as as long as nobody knows it's me, okay? So I do have uh-huh. some qualifications on the job. <laughs> so I knew the minute I got the first job, I knew that it was the job, and I did it. It was really hard. And then I was given my second job. I knew it immediately, and it was really hard, and I did it. And then I looked at the cover of People magazine, and I looked up, and I said, this is the big job, isn't it? Okay, I got it. Mm. And that's, I, I believe that I was put on earth to do the work I'm doing. I believe that. I believe I was Miss America. I believe that's why I became a motivational speaker, yeah. because this is the purpose. This is the purpose I was given for my life. Yeah. Well, there's 
so much uh, that is beautiful and wonderful about what you just shared. Uh, you know, one of the first things that I like to work with all my clients is with my clients is what I call their highlight reel. Because it's so true, when we are in the pain of healing and recovery and everything looks pretty bleak and difficult, we forget that there are things in our lives that are beautiful still. Even if, I say sometimes, even if it's just the fact that you got out of bed today or yeah. the sun is shining or there's a you know pretty flower, it, it can be the smallest, minutest thing. But by keeping our attention and turning our attention to those things, um, it does help us come into the place of um, hope, but also I think what you you were also talking about self-acceptance and acceptance in general, that this is just how it is. And we have a choice about how we're going to respond to that. Are we going to be broken and fall apart and be miserable for the rest of our lives? Or are we going to get the support that we need to heal for sure and begin marching towards what's next, and that all of it in some way lines up somehow. <laughs> you know, exactly what you're saying. You know, you were given this, you know, position so that when your story came out, people wanted to listen, people wanted to notice, people wanted to read it and hear it, and it positioned you to be able to now go on to where you're you know, taking care of email every day, five, 50 to 100. I don't know how you do that. I'm going nuts with, you know, 25. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I, I cannot wait. I wake up in the morning and we go work out and then I come and go on my website. And I have emails from China, from Ireland. Yeah. I mean, just fascinating. And a woman who you would you know her name in a minute from Washington, D.C., not hello, Marilyn, we've never met, not... It just they start right in with the story as yeah. if we had been talking for ten years, and it's yeah. just such a privilege to be able to be a part of people's lives and that they trust me yes. they they yes. Tr- if if word got out for this woman in washington d c uh, she would she trusts me, and that is so precious to me that she can. Oh, I I spoke in um, Syracuse, New York, and people line up, and I sign books. And this man came up to the table, and I looked into his eyes, and I said, could we step aside for a minute? And I said to the people waiting, would you give me a minute, please? And we walked off to the side a little bit, and I looked right at him, and I said, who was your violator? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me, and he said, my older brother. I know he's. Uh, he looked to be about in his fifties. I don't think he had ever said those words before. I I just right. I don't I just don't think he had ever said those words. And to be a part of 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 having someone speak the words maybe for the first time, right. and to tr- trust you enough. Um, yeah. I, I, I do want to go back to one thing that we were talking about about my my having mixed feelings about my father. I am very close to a woman who's 42. Um, she was violated by her brother, seven years older, and it was very detrimental to her life. She's one mm-hmm. of four children. The only relationship she has with her siblings, that is, she said, he's he's the only one I'm close to. 
And she said, mm-hmm. I know nobody mm-hmm. could ever, how could anybody ever understand that? How could anybody ever stand? Look what he's done to my life. I mean, I've just had, I've, it's been so hard for me. Yeah. And yet he's, he's the sibling I feel closest to. He has the most interest in me. And it was so interesting because her husband said to me, he never meant to hurt her. And one of the reasons I keep speaking, one of the reasons I keep going, and I do, I keep going and going and going, is because 14-year-olds <laughs> 14 mm-hmm. year olds comprise the largest number of sex offenders of any age group. And yeah. he was, like this Duggan story that's going around now, this boy was 14. And in mm-hmm. every speech I give, I say, go home and talk to your children. And do you know what they do? They go home and they talk to their children about inappropriate yeah. touching. And right. it's just so important for us to sit down and talk to our kids and say, this Absolutely. is what's appropriate and this is never appropriate. Uh, we yeah. have to talk about it. I asked a 15-year-old in Denver how many hours she had to spend to get a driver's license in Denver. 56 hours. And mm. I say to parents in my speeches, to whatever audience comes, how many hours do you spend talking to your teenagers about what's appropriate right. as they grow into their sexuality? 56 right. hours to get a driver's license, really? <laughs> and you know what? They listen. It's so I had so a man true. say to me, so, um, it, was a tu- it was a tux dinner, a, a, a dressy formal dinner, and this man came up and he said, okay, I hear you. I know I need to do this, but I just don't know how to start. And I said, well, what if we start with the truth? Last night I attended a dinner, and this woman told me, that I should have a conversation with you kids, and I don't feel really comfortable about doing it, and I hope you feel mm-hmm. more comfortable talking to your kids, but we're going to have a conversation. I said, can you do that? He said, I can do that. <laughs> so there he goes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, thank you so much for that. And, oh, my gosh, we could have a whole, uh, you know, long series on how to talk to your children and how to raise awareness, but it's so true, and, and so, I'm so glad you brought that forward in our conversation tonight that, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that we can do to end this epidemic is to educate our little ones. Absolutely. One. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's so, so important. I and heard my so grandma. My grandson was six, and he was in a playroom with some other kids, and I heard him saying, don't touch my privates, don't touch my privates, and he was laughing, but, but he knows what that means, and that yeah. may be all he needs to know at age six, but he, he did know that at age six, yeah. and he needed yeah. to know that at age six. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things that you, that you bring forward then is it's not even one 56-hour conversation, it's a conversation over a lifetime because what you teach the six-year-old is different from what you teach the 10-year-old, from what you teach the 12-year-old, the 15-year-old. So it's an ongoing dialogue that we need it's to also, be able to it's have. Also watching, it's also watching television and saying, what he said to her right there, that is not okay. Not, not okay, That is yeah. not okay. So we have yeah. teaching moments all the time, constantly. Yes. We're in the car and we see someone shouting at a, a man, shouting at a woman or whatever, and we say, that's yes. not, that's, that is not okay. No one should treat right. someone like that. Right. So it's a daily, it's a daily education. Mm, love that. Absolutely love that. So, Marilyn, as we start to get close to our, our time together, coming to an end, um, is there any, you know, kind of final thought, anything that you'd really like to leave the listeners with this evening? 
I just think that the hardest thing that you can think of that you need to do is what you need to do now. And oh my gosh, it's that's great. Yes. It's partly listening to that voice in your head that never stops. <clears throat> we know what our next step is. I had someone say to me, I, I want to talk to my brother, but my therapist thinks I need to talk to whatever. And I said, I said you, need to, you need to talk to your brother. <laughs> you, whatever talk, you're talking about in your head, what keeps going around in your head, yeah. this is what you need to do. And is it hard? Yes, it is. Um, yes, it is, each and every time. Each and every time I disclosed, I felt like my life was ending. Um, but each and every time, I had to know if that person was still going to accept me. And I went from person to person, one at a time, sister to sister to sister, sister-in-law to sister-in-law, uh, you know, just one by one by one, I would have these one-on-one conversations, each one, each time thinking that that person would never speak to me again or would, you know, just think I was awful. Because yeah. I had to know, am I acceptable, really? And I was in my late 40s. I was enormously successful professionally. I just couldn't find respect for myself. That took that took some time, but I did the work. I did the work. Yeah, beautiful. Man, I really love that. And and I really want to encourage everybody to take that to heart because that is some gold advice right there. Uh you know, that's definitely worth like a $200 therapist session. <laughs> just that little piece right there. Well, and I'm impressed I'm, that I'm impressed that you read my book. Good for you. <laughs> of course. And so, and I expect other people to read it as well. Um, go out there, pick up this book, Miss America by Day. You can get it on Amazon. You can go to Marilyn's website, www.missamericabyday.com and read more about her. Connect with her. You can add to her list of emails. <laughs> To be reading, you can be so accessible and so available. That's what I do. And love it. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you can always visit me at rachelgrantcoaching.com as well to check out the resources that are there. And um, again, Marilyn, it's been such a pleasure and such an honor to have you on as our guest tonight. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. And until we meet again, take very good care of yourselves. Good night, everyone.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.